0: You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit harvestbrampton.ca. our heads together, let's pray to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for that joy that you have given us, that joy that is unbreakable, that is unchangeable because it does not depend on our mood or our circumstance because it depends on you. And you are always good and you are always faithful and you have chosen to love us in your son, Jesus Christ. God, I thank you for the privilege of gathering together to worship you right now, in this place, Lord. We pray that as you open your word before us now, Lord, that we would hear your voice, that you would speak profoundly and powerfully. In Jesus' name, if you agree, say amen. 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 Well, please be seated, open up your Bibles to the book of Galatians. If you don't have a Bible with you, the ushers are coming up and down the aisle to get one into your hands if you need one. Listen, loved ones, hasn't it been great to, to celebrate our freedom today? Hasn't it been awesome to praise the Lord and delight in the fact that we were once enslaved to sin, we were once under the curse of the law, but Christ has set us free, and if the Son sets us free, we're free indeed. But listen, loved ones, as important as it is to be jubilant in our expression of the freedom, in the celebration of that freedom, it's just as important that we are as vigilant in the protection of that freedom. In the same way that we must be jubilant in celebrating freedom, we must be vigilant in protecting our freedom. You see, there's all kinds of things all around us and inside of us that are are trying to compete with or take away or enslave us and take away that freedom that Jesus has so graciously graciously provided us. There's temptation out there in the world that promises this sort of version of slavery or this version of freedom that actually is slavery. Not only that, working behind the scenes, we have an enemy called the devil who is continually trying to enslave us. And if he can't get us to go the way of the world and to live a life of drunken debauchery and fornication, then he'll just tempt us in another way and he'll enslave us to religion and to doing good deeds and our own self-righteousness. But not only are we threatened in, in, in terms of our freedom by the world or by the enemy, we are threatened inside ourselves. There is something inside of us that wants to rebel against God's command. There's also something inside of us that feels good about ourselves when we do follow God's command. So loved ones, we are fighting a battle on multiple fronts and we are freedom fighters and we must be vigilant in protecting and preserving our freedom. If you look at Galatians 5 verse 1, he says, for freedom Christ has set us free. Then he says, stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. It's a call to stand firm. Today's message is called standing firm in your freedom, ready to fight, ready to protect, ready to do whatever it takes to make sure that this freedom that has been so graciously given to us is not taken away. In this passage, we're gonna see two major threats, two major threats to our freedom that Paul is going to outline here. He begins by saying, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So he's using an agricultural metaphor here. He's describing a huge, powerful, ox that has been enslaved. It's an animal that's been domesticated. It can no longer run free but a, a farmer has captured it and, and, and has laid a yoke on it, a big piece of wood and, and is now using a whips and ropes to try to get this ox now to plow a field. The ox doesn't want to plow the field. The ox doesn't care at all about the crops in the field but he is being forced to do it. But then the picture is that this yoke has been taken off. And and if if an animal would know enough that as soon as that yoke is taken off, as soon as the reins and the rips have disappeared, what's that ox going to do? The ox is going to run. It's going to enjoy the freedom that it's been given. How foolish would it be for that ox to come back to the farm and to sort of put his head down and try to get the yoke back onto its shoulders. That would be utter foolishness, but loved ones... Paul is using that metaphor to describe us, to say even though we have been set free in Jesus Christ, there's something inside of us. Even though Jesus has burst all the chains and broken the iron bars that kept us in prison and enslaved us, there's something about us that wants to take those chains and try to repair them and then wrap them around us so that we would become enslaved again. Here's the first thing he's going to tell us as it relates to our freedom. That we need to stand firm against self-righteousness. Because if we do not stand firm against our own self-righteousness. And taking pride in our own good deeds. Then we will lose our freedom. So stand firm against self-righteousness. Don't lose your freedom. Paul begins in verse 2. He says, look, I, Paul, say to you. He's saying, look, he's saying, I I want you to get this. He's saying, have you been paying attention? I know this has been a long letter that I'm writing, but I don't want you to miss this point. He's saying, it's me, it's me, Paul, that's telling you this. Paul who visited you there, who preached the gospel to you there in Iconium and Lystra and Derbe, the the cities in that region of Galatia. He's saying, it's me, Paul, who's speaking to you with apostolic authority. He's saying, I want you to get this. He's saying, look, listen to what I'm saying. And remember, Paul has been building a case throughout this letter that he's written. He started in chapter 1 and chapter 2 saying, this is not man's gospel, this is God's gospel. And he told his own story about how he got saved on the road to Damascus, and then his different visits to Jerusalem, and his different interactions with the apostles there. Then in chapter 3 and chapter 4, he started using, so he began with his own story, then he started using the great big story, the story of the Old Testament, the story of God. Saving his people. He started with Abraham, how Abraham was justified by faith. And then he started to talk about Moses and the role between the law and the promise, and then the relationship between faith and works. And then Pastor Marvin led us so clearly through the difference between uh, Hagar and, and Sarah. And, and, the, and, and Ishmael, who's born of a slave, and Isaac, who's born free. And so he's, he's told his personal story. He's fitted into God's story in chapters 3 and 4. Now in chapter 5, he's, really, he's going he's gonna to bring the application. He's going to be ta- he's saying, look, pay attention. We've gone through all theology. You've heard my story. Now I really want you to get this because I don't want you to lose your freedom that he's gone to all of the trouble of trying to explain it to them theologically. He says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Verse 3, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You see, what was happening in these cities of Galatia was that the Jewish Christians were saying that non-Jewish Christians needed to be circumcised in order to be saved. This is described in Acts chapter 15 of verse 1. This happened after Galatians was written, but it says, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And Paul says, if you accept this, Look back in your Bibles. In verse 2 he says, Christ will be of no advantage to you. In verse 3 he says, you will be obligated to keep the whole law. And the apostles and the, the elders at the church of Jerusalem, they had this big meeting. And this was their conclusion in the next verse, Acts 15 of verse 10. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test? Notice this, by placing a yoke... On the neck of the disciples, notice, that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. You see, Paul knew, the apostles knew in Acts 15, that if you add circumcision, one small command in the Old Testament, you can't just pick and choose which commands you want to add. If you're going to add one of them, you're obligated to keep the whole law. And if you're obligated to keep the whole law, as Paul is saying here in Acts, In verse verse 3, then you're under a curse. Because remember, chapter 3, verse 10, we've come back to that verse a a number of times in the book of Galatians. That anyone who does not follow all of and obey all of the works of the law is under a curse. And so Paul is saying, you can't just pick and choose certain commands. And that's what we want to do in our own self-righteousness. And that's how churches, well-meaning churches, get taken way off course by picking a certain command, a command like the Sabbath, or, or a, a, a command like circumcision, or a, a certain other command, and saying, unless you follow this, you cannot be saved. You're not a true Christian. And Paul is saying, to, to live like that, to talk like that, is slavery. Notice the strong language that he uses there in verse 4. He says, you're severed from Christ. Not only is Christ of no advantage to you, but you're severed from Christ. This is the way gospel math works. You see, we are saved in Christ alone by faith alone through grace alone. So we're saved in Christ. If you try to add anything to Christ, and it's not we're just saved in Christ, it's Christ alone alone as soon as you add something it's no longer Christ alone so as soon as you add something to Christ alone Christ alone is automatically subtracted as soon as you make an addition the subtraction of the most important thing takes place it says you're severed from Christ as soon as you try to add a little bit of works a little bit of yeah Jesus did a lot but we need to do a little then you are you are severing yourself from Christ you are subtracting Christ from the equation. It's either Christ alone or it's not Christ at all. That's what Paul is making clear here. Verse 4, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. That's to be declared righteous. Paul spent a lot of time and we spent a lot of time talking about that term. To be justified is to be declared righteous and there's something inside of us. Our own self-righteousness wants to do it ourselves. But here's the truth, loved ones, as Phil Reichen clears out. God doesn't help those who help themselves. He doesn't. In the salvation context, he does not help those that help themselves. He helps those who know that they're helpless. Who knows that they cannot follow the law. Who knows that they have sinned against a holy God and cry out to him for mercy and for forgiveness. And believe by faith that Jesus suffered and died for them on the cross. That is who God helps. But if we try to be justified by the law, we are severed from Christ. Notice this phrase at the end of verse four. You have fallen away from grace. Fallen from grace. Fallen away from grace. You ever heard that term used before? Normally we use that term in church or in Christianity, sort of broadly speaking. To be fallen from grace normally means that you committed some heinous, horrible basically unforgivable sin, and you've fallen from grace. You've done something so bad that it's even beyond the limits of God's ability to forgive you. Now, beyond the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which is really just describing a rejection of who Jesus is and what he came to do, there is no sin that is unforgivable. It is impossible to fall from grace. Loved ones, what this verse is describing is not someone who's fallen from grace because they've done something that they're so ashamed of. It's it's not because of bad deeds that they feel horrible about. This person being described here has fallen from grace because of good deeds that they're proud of. You see, to fall from grace simply means to think that you don't need grace. And that is the dangerous place to be. And that is what Paul is describing here. This has nothing to do with losing your salvation. Jesus said in John ten twenty six, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Those who are saved, those who are truly saved, will persevere until the end. Not because of the strength of the individual Christian, but because of the strength of the promise of Jesus Christ. Our eternal security is not deemed on our faithfulness, but on his faithfulness. But to fall from grace is to cease to rely on his faithfulness and to rely on our own good deeds, circumcision or whatever that may be. And so Paul is trying to make that as clear as possible. So we need to make sure that we understand what fallen from grace means. It's not about losing your salvation, it's about losing your freedom. It's about trusting in your own self-righteousness. We fall away from grace when we trust in our own works. So we're not working for salvation. We're waiting. We're not saved by works. We're saved by waiting, waiting on Jesus Christ. Look at verse five. It says, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. We have righteousness. We are declared righteous, but there is a hope of righteousness that we are looking forward to in the future. And we are waiting. We we have been given the gift of God and we're waiting for the full consummation. We are found in Christ and Christ is going to come and bring us to be with him. That is the hope of righteousness, that we are going to go where only Jesus belongs. Jesus is the only righteous one. He's the only one who, who... who belongs in heaven but because we're found in him we have righteousness we have the hope of righteousness that we're going to go where only he belongs as we're found in him. Verse 6 he says for in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. See Paul is not opposed to the the medical procedure that's known as a circumcision. He's not opposed to that minor operation, the removal of a foreskin. He's he's not opposed to circumcision or uncircumcision. What he's opposed to is the idea that that's what gets you saved, that 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 is what proves that someone is a Christian. He says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only. Faith. That's what he's been saying all of this time. But now here comes the application. Only faith working through love. So, all of this time, Paul has been contrasting faith with works. Are we saved by faith or are we saved by works? He's been saying, we're saved by faith, not by works. But now he's taking those two concepts that were were juxtaposed from one another... Faith and works, now he's bringing them together. It is faith first. We're saved by faith alone, not faith and works, but faith produces works. It talks about faith working through love. To be a Christian doesn't just mean to believe some things. Because if you have those beliefs, fundamentally that must change our behavior. We don't just believe certain creeds. No, we live according to a certain conduct. Not so that we will be saved, but because we are saved, saved by faith. But that faith is now working through love in our lives. So, by faith, working through love, we tell the truth, we don't lie. To one another. By faith working through love, we work hard at our jobs. We don't waste time or are unloving to the people around us who are counting on us. By faith working through love, we attend church to learn more about God, to be part of the body. We serve in church, to, 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 be, to, be, to have faith working through love. We read our Bibles. We do that good work, not so that God is pleased with us, but because He already is. And so we, we work and we work hard, but we work hard so secure knowing that we are saved, saved by faith. And then in, as we get to verse 7 now, Paul is going to transition from talking about false teaching to talking specifically about false teachers. He says in verse 7, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Now he's using uh, an athletic metaphor. He talks about they're, they're running a race and they're doing well and they're going along the track. And then all of a sudden he says, who hindered you? Who stepped in front of you and stopped you while you were running and you were trying to go this way? And now they're telling you to run on a different track. Notice that Paul doesn't know who the false teacher is. He's asking the question, who hindered you from obeying the truth, the truth that we're saved by, faith? And he says in verse 8, this persuasion is not from him who calls you. He's saying, uh, notice this, that false teaching is very persuasive. We talked earlier on in the series about how there's something deep inside of all of us that, that appeals to certain kinds of false teaching. The prosperity gospel appeals to us because we, yeah, we would like the comfort and security that would come from having wealth. And riches, the, the legalistic gospel appeals to us, although it's false, appeals to us because we like the idea of thinking, yeah, you know, I did something. I, I'm a good person. All of those things appeal to us. But notice how it says uh, this persuasion is not from him who calls you. It's not from God. And listen, loved ones, I haven't been in ministry for a long time. This church has, has uh, about to celebrate its 8th its anniversary in September. And, and I've, I've been in a full-time ministry for about 15 or 16 uh, years now. And I've, I've really only gone toe-to-toe, face-to-face with a false teachers, maybe, maybe on four different occasions. And I've got to tell you, we need to understand how persuasive false teachers can be. You see, here's what we normally expect a false teacher to to be like, sort of belligerent and obnoxious and and intimidating and, and really pressuring people to believe a certain way. Listen, out of the four false teachers that came to mind as I was preparing this week, only one of them was like that. The other three were the sweetest, nicest, kindest people you could ever meet when we were talking back and forth with one another, when I heard them talk to other people, when I saw them speak in public, so winsome, so caring, coming across as being so open-minded, never saying that we disagree, always saying, no, we're still on, that's the one thing about false teachers, they will always say, well, we're not actually having you run a different course, it's still the same. And loved ones, I've had had to realize, listen, I've gone toe-to-toe with people that are nicer than me, that that come across as more open-minded than me, that are definitely more intelligent than me. It's very persuasive to, to really interact with someone who is bringing us false teaching. But... Paul here is saying that what they're saying is not from him who called you. It's not from God. Look at verse 9. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. He moves from an athletics metaphor now to a, a, a kitchen metaphor, baking Bread, And in order to get that bread to rise, you add leaven. And just a little bit is needed, and that bread is forever transformed. That dough will never be the same. Before, it was flat. And now, that dough is going to rise, and there's nothing stopping it. A little leaven, a little bit of yeast. You see, here's the thing. Theology, the categories of theology, are so interconnected. The theology of the Trinity... The theology of who God is, the theology of how we're saved, the theology of the church. All of these things are interconnected. And if you're a little bit off on one or two areas, a little bit off on the Trinity, that's going to filter down into all of the different areas. If you're a little bit off on your theology of the church, that's going to filter down into all of the other areas. And if you allow false teaching into your theology, it's going to affect. But here's the other thing. Your theology is not just inter, in, interconnected, but your life is interconnected with your theology as well. And so the way that you live, a little leaven, leavens the whole dough. It happens in the individual's life. It happens in a church as well. And so we must stand firm against all false teaching, especially the false teaching of self-righteousness that Paul is going after here in this chapter. Notice verse 10, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. You see, Paul, when he said fallen from grace, he didn't think that they'd lost their salvation. He was just saying that they've they've run off track and they need to get back on track, and he's confident that they're gonna believe what he believes, because he's confident in their eternal security. He's confident that they are saved and haven't fallen away from the faith, they've simply fallen away from Grace. I have comp- But notice where his confidence is. Again, it's not in the people. It's a confidence in the Lord that God began a good work in them and will carry it on to completion. But notice this. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Again, Paul doesn't know who this is. Uh, but Paul knows that there is a serious judgment that is coming his way. A judgment that the Apostle James talks about in James chapter 3, verse 1. James 3, verse 1 says, Not many of you should become teachers. This is such a sobering verse for me. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. For you know that we who teach will be judged by greater strictness. And Paul knew that these people who are spreading this teaching that is contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ, he knew that there was a penalty that was coming from them if they would not repent. Then verse 11, he says, but if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? Pastor Marv talked about this, that the legalist always persecutes the person who preaches freedom. And, And again, the false teacher always tries to say, well, we all believe the same thing. I just believe a little bit, a little bit differently. And, and so what was being said about Paul was the false teacher was saying, yeah, I agree with Paul, and, and Paul preaches circumcision the same way I do. I just look at it a little bit differently. And Paul says, look, I'm getting beat up in the street, man, because I'm not preaching circumcision. And again, false teaching tries to blur the lines and try to say, can't we all just get along? And you know what? We all agree in the end. But that's simply not true. Paul says, no, I'm laying my life on the line. I'm being persecuted for what I believe. And he says, in that case, in the case if he were to remove circumcision, the offense of the cross has been removed. What's the offense of the cross? Why is the cross offensive? Well, it's It's offensive because it's offensive to the part of us inside of us that loves self-righteousness. It's offensive because the person who hears the gospel says, I don't need to do anything. God did it all for me. It's like an insult to, to our sense of achievement that we can actually do things. If we just set a goal, if we just work harder, the gospel is offensive to us in that way. Then he says something quite shocking in verse 12. He says, in that case, the offense of the cross, oh, sorry, sorry, verse 12, he says, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. If you're not familiar with the term emasculate, uh, he's just talking about uh, just doing uh, more than simply circumcision, uh, removing more than just uh, foreskin, uh, removing the, the, the whole sign, the, the whole purpose Though the whole means by which they could uh, prove that they were truly Christians, that one, just get rid of the whole thing, that they couldn't prove it either way. Now this is quite extreme language, and we understand big picture-wise, as we look at different things that Paul has said, that Paul would want nothing more than for these false teachers to, to repent. And to believe the true gospel. So he's not saying something spiteful or vindictive. He's, there, there's nothing malicious in his words. He's just showing the seriousness of what this false teaching is doing to their church. But that wasn't the only threat. If you look at verse 13, he says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Jot this down as our, our second point, And this is going to come a little quicker now. Stand firm against self-indulgence. Don't misuse your freedom. Stand firm against self-indulgence. Don't misuse your freedom. Again, he says that we're called to freedom in verse 13. And he says, don't use your freedom as an opportunity for The flesh, what is the flesh? The flesh isn't simply referring to our physical flesh, but the, the flesh is a term that's used throughout the New Testament to describe something that lives inside of us that is not truly us. You see, we have been transformed on the inside. Galatians 2.21 says, we've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. But there is still this flesh inside of us, this old part of us. It's not our true identity. It's not who we truly are, but it's residual sin. It's the habits, the patterns of thinking of sin that's still inside of us, that draws us away from trusting in Christ and that draws us to use our freedom to satisfy those fleshly desires. We've been given a new heart and we have a new identity and next week we're gonna talk about how the, the spirit is at war with the flesh to keep us from doing the things that we truly want to do you see, John Stott talks about how the gospel is not freedom to sin. It's freedom from sin. It, it's not that we've just been given a, a, a license to thrill and that we can just go and do whatever we feel like doing. And here's what he says we're supposed to do. It, it's not as a, we're not supposed to use our freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. I'm at the end of verse 13 here. It says, but through love... Serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, Paul takes an interesting turn here. I mean, earlier he talked about faith working through love. I mean, but wasn't he saying the whole time that faith was something different from love and they need to be kept separate? But now he's turning it on its head again. And he's saying, no, faith now is working, and it's working through love. But here's a really interesting thing. If you look at verse 13, it says, through love, serve one another. It doesn't really come through here in English, but the root of that verb, serve one another, is the root of slavery. So sort of a a more awkward translation would be, would be, Don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, be a slave to one another. But I mean, wasn't the whole point of this book to say that we're not slaves? And now we're coming to the very end. We only have a couple of messages or just a chapter and a half left in the book. And now he's saying that we are supposed to be slaves to one another. And then he goes on in verse 14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. And he quotes Leviticus 19.18 to, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But he's saying we're supposed to fulfill the law, but wasn't the whole point of the book to say that we're not, we don't need to follow the law? The whole point of the book was to say it's faith, not works. Now he's telling us to do works. The whole point of the book was to say that it's freedom, not slavery. Now he's telling us to be a slave to one another. The whole point of the book was to say that, that we no longer need to follow the law, but now he's telling us that we follow the law. What is going on here? You see, true freedom comes from through love serving others. People. True fulfillment of the law comes when we are loving God and loving other people. That is where true freedom is found. You see, here's the thing. When a Christian obeys from their new heart and by the power of the Spirit, we're no longer obeying trying to earn our way to God. We're obeying because we love God. We're not obeying because we're afraid that we're going to go to hell if we sin. No, we're obeying because we know we have been given the promise, the hope of righteousness, that we're going to go to heaven. We obey out of a love for God and for others. And all of this talk about serving one another and fulfilling the law and working through love. This isn't about earning our salvation, loved ones. This is about the evidence of salvation. This is the natural reaction to being saved. We are freed. Freely loved by God and we have everything that we need in Him. Here's why, here's why, loved ones, we can freely love people and serve one another. I want to bring bring back a diagram that we looked at maybe uh, two years ago in our church. This is the way love normally works. We express love to other people and what we're expecting as a result of our loving other people is we want them in turn to love us back. But what so often happens in our family relationships, in our friendships, in our workplace, in our church relationships, is we try to love, we expect it to come back, but it so often just comes back empty, doesn't it? And secular psychology talks about having your love tank filled. And you've got to have your love tank filled in order for you to be able to love people. And and you'll love as long as some other love is coming back. But listen, all of us have a hole in our love tank. And it doesn't matter how much love comes back, it all drains out the bottom. But the gospel of Jesus Christ now breaks this cycle, this reciprocity of expectation. of I do something good for you, you do something good for me. And you give me all of the affirmation and the kindness and the love and the acceptance that I'm looking for as I show love to you. But then when we come before the cross of Jesus Christ, what happens? We see love on a whole new level and we are crushed with this tidal wave wave, and we say, oh, how marvelous, oh, how wonderful is the Savior's love for me. And we experience grace and mercy and forgiveness and acceptance and identity so fully from Jesus Christ so that when we see another person, we we no longer need them to do anything for us to feel accepted. And we just turn around and love them freely. Through love, it says here, we serve one another. Why? Because we've been freely loved by God. And loved ones, this this diagram is, is, is how the gospel transforms all of our human relationships. So that when we're on highway 410, if we're in the flesh, why are all of the other cars there? They're there to serve you. They're there to get out of the way. They're there to help you get home as soon as possible. And how are they doing at sending that love your way? They're really not good at it, are they? And so what happens? You're expecting them to serve you and to get out of your way, and they don't, and so you get frustrated. And so you start yelling and shouting things or giving gestures that you regret. Because you were expecting them to serve you, but in the Spirit... Through love, you understand that there's human souls in all of those cars. And you're, you're filled with gratitude and thankfulness that you were even a, an owner of a, of a vehicle and, and live in a country that has this kind of infrastructure. And you serve. And sure, do you want to come? you want to cut me off? Go right ahead. It changes everything. When we parent in the flesh, we think our kids are there to serve us. And they're supposed to provide peace and quiet so that we can get done whatever we want to get done. But when they disrupt that peace and quiet, we, we get angry and we get frustrated. Why? Because we're expecting them to serve us. But in love, if we're serving our family, if, if we think about loving them and putting their, there's so much freedom in that. Because here's the thing. If you're always expecting other people to serve you, you'll always be enslaved to perpetual disappointment because people will always let you down. But if you, go into the, if you go into any sort of social situation, human interaction situation with the idea of, no, I'm gonna serve in love, you always win. If you go in as a servant, you are always free because it always works. You always end up feeling good and the person always ends up feeling good. And loved ones, this diagram, can we bring up the very last diagram uh, in, the, in the chart as well? This not only changes our good deeds. You see, when we love, it not only fulfills the law by doing the things we're supposed to do, like being kind and courteous, it also helps us understand our bad deeds. Is there anyone here who, who struggles with deception? Deception. You 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 might exaggerate a story to make yourself look better, or you might make an excuse, make up some sort of a story so that people don't judge you. Why do we lie? We lie because we're expecting the person that we're talking to to, to affirm us and to accept us. And we think if I tell them the truth, then I won't be accepted. I won't be affirmed. So I need to tell this lie to them so that they can give me what I need. That's slavery. That's why you can't stop lying. is because you're so afraid that people will reject you. But if you believe in the gospel and, and, and believe that you have been accepted and affirmed and your identity is found in him, you can just tell the truth because you know God's got your back. And it doesn't matter if people reject you or don't love you. And chances are, listen, people will love you if you tell them the truth because we live in such a world where everybody lies. It's refreshing when people actually tell the truth. So it changes not just our good deeds, also our bad deeds. So all of these things we need to think about in our family, in our, with, in, with our neighbors, in our workplaces, with our spouses, with complete strangers. We need to go into situations drafting off of the abundant love that God has given to us and then through love serving one another. You see, here's the, here's the consequence of if we don't do that. At verse 15 he says, but if you bite and devour one another... Watch out that you are not consumed by one another. You see, if we're always loving in order to get something back, we're going to end up devouring each other because we're trying trying to take something from someone who's finite to fill something inside of us that's infinite. And we're going to end up biting and devouring one another. That's why marriages fall apart. That's why relationships between uh, sons and daughters and fathers and mothers fall apart. That's why churches fall apart. It's because we're looking for something from someone. But when we look to Jesus, we find everything that we need. And because he loved us, he served us. Mark 10.45 says, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Because he loved us and served us, we can love and serve others. And the gospel, loved ones, Sets us free because it not, only, it not only saves us, it changes us from the very core of who we are. It not just saves us from the condemnation that we should experience because of sin. It also changes the very motivation to sin. The very reason why we lie. When we truly understand the gospel, we think, I don't need to lie anymore. Because of the gospel, it transforms us from the inside out. And so loved ones as we get ready to celebrate all that God has done as a church family we're going to we're going to somberly celebrate and remember the cost of our freedom. We're going to remember the price that Jesus paid for us in order for us to be set free. And so let's pray now to prepare our hearts for that moment. Heavenly Father, We thank you that by your spirit, you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to come into this world to seek and to save the lost and to set free those who were in slavery and to liberate those who were captives. Jesus, we thank you that you sacrificed your body, that you spilled your blood so that we could be saved so that we could be saved from the condemnation that we deserve from sin, but also for the very motivation that causes us to sin. Help us to live by the Spirit. Help us to live and love and follow you. Would you be present as you have promised to be present with us? Would you be present with us as we take these symbols into our hands? We pray these things in your strong name. Amen. Amen. This has been an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church or to contact us, please visit harvestbrampton.ca.